Tonight, another cold case from the Metro Police Homicide File. It's a murder from 1973. The longer a case goes cold, the harder it is to solve. Maybe if it was solved, if they could find out who did it, um, it would help. We're hoping that someone saw something, knows something, remembers something that might help us finally find justice for her. Welcome to the Searching for Closure podcast, a real-time investigative podcast looking into the 1973 unsolved homicide of Tina Davison. I'm Sean McGregor. On the last episode, I talked about how I went to Tina's former house in search of her sister, Bonnie. She wasn't home, so I left a note for her. The note briefly introduced myself. I said, I was working on a podcast regarding the Tina Davison cold case, and I was looking to speak to her. I invited her to call me, and I included my phone number and webpage address, and I left it in her mailbox. A few days later, something unexpected happened. One of Bonnie's friends reached out to me on Facebook. She said, My mother was friends with Tina Davison's mother, Kathy and is still friends with Tina's sister, Bonnie. Bonnie did get the note you left in her mailbox. It terrified her. She does not want to be contacted. She remembers and talks about Tina to my mom frequently. She would prefer to be left alone. I was blown away. I envisioned dozens of different scenarios playing out as I knocked on her door, and dozens of different scenarios played out in the days after I left the note as I waited and hoped for a response. But I didn't expect this. I didn't expect to have the daughter of one of her friends reach out to me on Facebook and tell me that I terrified Bonnie by leaving my note. I did not mean for that to happen. That was the opposite of what I wanted to happen. I didn't want to scare her. I felt horrible. I felt like I completely messed up. I made a mistake, and I want to take a moment to speak directly to Bonnie in case she's listening. Bonnie, if you're listening to this, or if you know Bonnie, please pass this message to her. I offer my most sincere apologies. I never meant to cause you any fear, sadness, or anything else. I was just looking for any info on Tina so I can tell her story. I want to help solve her case. I want the world to know her story. I wanted to know more about her as a person. I didn't want everyone to remember her as a victim. I only want good things. I apologize if I brought up any painful memories. I want to tell this story with the utmost respect. I only want justice for Tina. I will not make any more attempts to reach out to you. But if you're listening to this podcast and have a change of heart or change your mind and are willing to speak to me, I would be honored. Again... I'm sorry, Bonnie. What? Who? When? Where? Why? With what? And how? 
These are the seven circumstances. They constitute a formula for getting the complete story on a subject. Principles that I learned getting my diploma in journalism. Sure, it was an online course, but I still got something to frame. Answering each one of these questions, though, just brought more questions. During my investigation, I found that the more that I dig, the more questions I'm left with. Some I found answers to, but some just lead me to a dead end, down a rabbit hole, or just in circles. One of the first questions I had when I read about this case was, who was the on-again, off-again boyfriend that was with Tina at her mom's house on March 26th? What color was his car? Did he have an alibi? Tina's mother was quoted in a news article in the journal Sentinel on March 28th, 1973, saying that he left on a bicycle that night, but he did own a car. If he usually drove a car, why was he on a bike that night? Where was the ice cream shop that Tina was last seen at? And who was a redheaded man? The man was described to police as being 35 to 40 years old, with reddish, stiff, coarse hair, green eyes, and crow's feet. His face was also reddish, and he had long sideburns and a mustache. His car was thought to be a four-door bronze or gold color boxy and square older model with a dull finish. And since we're on the topic of suspects, who are the two white juvenile males in the blue car seen near the beach the day Tina's body was found? Some of the Facebook posts paint Tina in a negative light, which leads me to question, did Tina have any enemies at school? From what I read about in most news articles and from what people said that actually knew her, she didn't really have any enemies. She sounded like a quiet, sweet girl who just had a troubled life. Did she suffer any trauma besides the stabbing to her neck and chest and the blunt force trauma to her head? Were there any possible scratches or bite marks that could provide a match to any other suspects? On the Facebook group and on Web Sleuths, a few people pointed fingers at a convicted killer named Dennis Bratner and another one named Gerald Turner as possible suspects. I wonder, were they ever investigated? Both of those killers are big enough to have their own episodes where I cover them individually, and I will. I'll be covering them in future episodes. It's been 45 years now, so I wonder, is there any evidence the police haven't shared, but now they can? Since it's been over four decades since the crime was committed, are the police willing to share any clues or new evidence they might have? Or is what they have so small they need to save it for if they ever do apprehend a suspect and try to convict them? I also wonder, was her clothing ever discovered? Perhaps there was DNA or evidence found on her clothes. And perhaps the location of where her clothes were found could lead police closer to the suspect. Where do police believe the murder took place? I read that they didn't believe it took place on the beach. If not there, then where? One of the biggest and wildest theories I've read involved a short man who was missing three fingers. I was told specific names, but 
I won't mention them because they have not been convicted of any crimes. Have the police investigated these people? Have they even been made aware of the allegations? I tried calling Deputy Chief Scholes again. I didn't expect him to answer. So, when he did in fact answer, I was caught off guard. I was prepared to leave another voicemail. Once again, I should have been ready. I guess I was still learning on the job. This is all new to me, but I want justice for Tina. Even though she died eight years before I was born, I can feel the heartache the more I look into this case. Everything I've read about this case, seeing the beach where her body was found, visiting her lonely grave, it all makes me want to work harder. Instead of trying to quote the deputy chief or transcribe what he said, I planned on just playing the entire call on this episode. It's only about six minutes long. I wasn't going to try to hide my awkwardness or how unprepared I was. I also don't want to be accused of misquoting anything he said. I want you to hear the answers coming straight from his mouth. He was as helpful as he could, and he was very nice. But this is still an ongoing case, and he couldn't give me a ton of information. Regardless, I'm extremely thankful for him for taking my call and answering my questions. Unfortunately, though, I won't be playing the call on this episode. Because of my surprise that he actually answered and my nervousness of interviewing a deputy chief for the first time, I completely forgot to ask him if I could play the recording of our call on this podcast. I'm not a legal expert, and I don't want to break any laws, so I'm not going to play it. Not yet, anyway. I tried calling him back when I realized my mistake, but I received his voicemail. He's out of town until after I release this episode. If he gives me permission, I'll post it in its entirety as a bonus episode in between regular episodes. So instead of playing the call, I'll just give you the cliff notes. I'll try to quote him as best as possible. I got the feeling that the deputy chief was a little put off by my call, but I don't really blame him at all. I mean, why was someone like me looking into this murder? After I explained what I was working on and what my intentions were, I was greeted with a mere, okay, that's it, nothing more, just, okay. Perhaps that's just years of police work that makes someone like that reserved, looking and examining everything in front of them while not giving up much information on themselves. I'm sure I could probably learn from that. He was able to answer most of my questions. He seemed to confirm that the police did not believe that Tina was actually murdered on the beach. He said that they believed there was a good chance it happened somewhere else. But where? Tina was stabbed 61 times. Not to be graphic, but that's going to leave a very, very large amount of blood. If it did happen in the killer's car, that interior is completely ruined. I had a friend who worked at an auto salvage yard. Most of their vehicles were sent there because someone had died in it. More times than not, it was from suicide. From what he told me, you'll never get those stains out. If the murder happened in an alleyway or a parking lot, for example, it would have left a pretty large pool of blood, large enough for someone to find the next day. 
chances are it would probably also freeze overnight too since it was so cold out. If someone found that pool of blood, did they just not turn it in? Because if they found it and called the police, the police would have to investigate it, which means taping off the scene and interviewing neighbors to see if there was any witnesses. Also, if they actually found out where the murder took place, wouldn't he just say, no, the murder did not take place on the beach? I know he can't name any names or give out too much information, but seems like something like that he could just confirm instead of just saying, quote, there's a good chance. When asked about her clothing, he kind of said that some items were found, but he quickly added that he couldn't go into details. One theory that is going around is that Tina was a victim of a serial killer. Serial killers are known to take trophies from their victims, whether it be jewelry, hair, clothing, whatever. They want a memento to look at and remember everything that happened. So perhaps if the killer did keep a few articles of clothing, it could point to a serial killer. But which serial killer? One that's been caught or one that is still out on the loose? W.D. Chief Schultz was able to confirm that there was no other trauma besides the blunt force to her head and the stab wounds. Guess that is sort of good news in a bad way. One can only hope that the initial strike to the head put Tina mostly out of it, and she didn't have to experience the violent frenzy that happened afterwards. He repeated multiple times that he couldn't name any persons of interest. He pointed out that everyone that has been mentioned is still a person of interest. In regards to the boyfriend, no one has been cleared that has been interviewed. He couldn't confirm or deny anyone that they've looked into. He stated that he didn't come across Tina having any enemies, which echoed a lot about what I've read about her, that Tina was just a quiet, sweet, shy girl. He seemed to debunk that wild, short man drug dealer theory. He said it's been a while since he really read into the case file, but the theory didn't ring any bells for him. I've read numerous names of people that are alleged to be involved, but I've seen no facts. Just pure speculation. But, you know, it was worth asking about. If you're curious as to what was actually said regarding this theory, I'll read the quote, but I'm going to replace the names with initials. A man on a Facebook group posted, quote, Everyone back then knew who did it. She was going to turn on BJ for drugs. It was a contracted hit carried out by JT, a short guy with three fingers missing from his right hand. I do believe that police were paid off too. My older sister was dating BJ at the time. AZ was involved too. It shook the whole city because of the brutality. GJ knows all too well what went down. I still say the cops were covering up stuff. Same as that security guard that was killed behind Steiberg's a decade or so later. Guess money talks. I've not reached out to the man who posted that quote on the Facebook group. Not yet, anyways. This theory is probably one of the most wild theories that I've heard. For now, it's just going to sit on the back of the shelf. But I will investigate it later. Every tip, 
and every lead needs to be looked at. I just have more plausible leads to investigate for right now. When I asked about any new evidence they could release, he just suggested that I check out the Racine Police Department's Facebook page. Well, after I got off the phone with him and I caught my breath, that was the first thing I did. I went to the page and I went back over four years, carefully reading through each link. I went through four years of photos and notes. I couldn't see any cold case feature, so it must not still be up. One thing he said that pleasantly surprised me was the fact that to this day, Tina's case gets more tips than any other case. Hopefully this podcast will help bring more. He also verified that the Dairy Queen that I originally thought was not in fact the ice cream shop. I thought it was the Dairy Queen that still exists today, but I've learned that's not the case. While digging through news articles, I found one from April 2nd, 1973, that placed the ice cream shop on the corner of Mason Street and Durand Avenue. That's actually about a mile east of the Dairy Queen and has since been demolished. So that shifts a couple of the distances slightly, but not enough to make a huge difference. After listening to that call maybe a dozen times or so, and preparing my notes for this episode, I realized that I still had a lot of questions. Were the two boys in the blue car ever identified? And if so, were they interviewed? Is there any details that can be given about the boys? Age? Hair or eye color? Any facial hair, tattoos, or distinguishing features? Was the man at the ice cream shop ever identified? If so, was he interviewed? Did he actually have red hair and green eyes with long sideburns and a mustache? Did he have any other distinguishing features? Do the police have any idea where the murder actually took place? And I have a couple questions from a listener. Was Tina wearing any jewelry, such as earrings, rings, or a necklace? Did Tina have a job at the time? Are there any persons of interest police are looking to identify or question that they have not been able to locate? I decided to give Deputy Chief Scholes another call, not only to ask my additional questions, but also get permission to play the audio calls. This time I was more prepared. But before I could call, I had a listener reach out to me. I won't be naming her to protect her identity, I want people who reach out to me to know that I'm a safe source. I'll refer to her as Becca. Tina and Becca had been best friends since fourth grade when Becca moved to Racine. Eventually, Becca would move an hour and a half west to the state's capital of Madison. Tina came to visit Becca the week before she was killed. Together, they attended a Leon Russell concert. She described Tina as a beautiful, creative person, a natural artist, kind and loving. She didn't see her as a victim. She claimed that Tina was the stronger of the two, and she gave Becca strength. Tina unfortunately had family issues, and so did Becca. She said that Tina was her refuge. She asked if I had received any information about people in Greencrest. I hadn't heard of Greencrest at all. 
I responded, no, and I asked what Greencrest was. It's a neighborhood around Greencrest Park. She said, there used to be a restaurant at the corner of Drexel and Durand. There was a basement there where all the kids would hang out. Apparently, a detective spoke to Becca, said that Tina was seen there that night with Becca's father, but Becca didn't believe that. She claimed they hated each other. She couldn't see Tina getting into a car with him unless he said that Becca was dying, and even then she would hesitate. I had not heard of this place at all, but Drexel is half a block east of Mason Street. In between there, that's where the ice cream stand was. I had to ask, was her father the man with red hair and the gold car? No, she claimed. He had dark hair. She went on to tell me that Bonnie doesn't live on 20th Street anymore. The house was sold after their mom passed. I found that odd that she wasn't the first person to tell me that Bonnie had moved, but somehow she received the note I left in her mailbox. Either she did still live there, or she knew the current tenants and they passed a note on to her. Becca said her and Tina had friends in Greencrest. Becca had a boyfriend named Kevin who has since passed away. Becca had run away from home, and when she returned, she was placed in a group home in Madison. After that, she said Kevin started dating Tina. I asked her if Kevin was Tina's boyfriend at the time, the boy who left her house that night on a bicycle despite having a car. She thought that it was either Kevin or Chloe. She went on to say, after it happened, people changed. Someone got a big tattoo on her shoulder to protect themselves from evil. She couldn't remember who came to the funeral. She attended with Tina's mother and Bonnie. I asked her if she still had contact with Bonnie. She didn't. She returned to Racine a few years ago, the summer after Tina's mother Kathy passed away. That would have been 2013. She would always stop by and see them. Sometimes Bonnie was home. The house was exactly the same as when Tina was there. She still had the same school picture of Tina in the same spot. But that year, a neighbor told her they had sold the house after the mother died. I used my internet detective skills to see when the house was last sold. I couldn't find any records, but I did see Bonnie listed as a current resident, along with a couple other names. Regardless, it didn't matter if she lived there. I asked Becca if the still live on Virginia Street, and if she remembered their first names. She only told me that their mom and little sister still lives there. She then started to tell me about a guy. His name was Al. She thought he lived in St. Louis at the time. She believes his brother was involved with those people. I asked her which people. The people who committed the satanic sacrifice on Tina. She said it really added to her pile of dysfunction, especially since was involved with people who were satanic. She didn't know the couple that were associated with Al, but they were a biracial couple, as she put it, which was not common in 1973. 
She then sent me a picture of her and Tina. I told her, you both look happy. She said, I think we were when we were together. I don't think I've ever really trusted anyone since. I was hanging on by my fingernails and the damn things broke. I was terrified for years too. You don't know who's involved, but I think I know and I think I'm right. I told her I was scared too once I really got into this. She told me she thought people had changed their names and moved away since then. Some of them, at least. One thing I've learned about doing a real-time investigative podcast is that sometimes you're grasping at straws, trying to find anything, trying to contact everyone on your list and having no luck. And then suddenly, a golden egg falls onto your lap. I looked up Leon Russell's tour dates. It's not that I didn't believe this woman. It's just that in order to properly report things, I need to verify everything first. Leon Russell did play a show in Madison the week before Tina was murdered. March 22nd, 1973 to be exact. Along with the picture she sent me, I full-heartedly believe this woman. Now I was ready to give Deputy Chief Shulls another call. But then I remembered he was still out of the office for another week. So, I'll have to wait. Which is fine, because just briefly looking at my notes, I could tell that I would be having a lot more questions in the upcoming weeks. Next time, on Searching for Closure. Now that I've asked the questions, I dive into similar murder cases. I've been researching homicides from 1963 through 1983, 10 years before and 10 years after Tina's case, to see if I can develop a pattern and perhaps spot a new suspect. If you knew Tina or have any tips or clues regarding her unsolved murder, please contact me at info at searchingforclosure.com or participate in our Facebook group, to search Facebook for Searching for Closure, the Tina Davison Cold Case Podcast. Every time I post a new episode, I will also be posting a new blog entry with notes, pictures, or videos. You can find that at www.searchingforclosure.com. Please rate and review us on iTunes and make sure you subscribe and spread the word. Her case has been unsolved for 45 years and it deserves closure. Until next time, thank you for listening.